everybody, and welcome back to East Screen, West Screen. This is episode 14, and it's Wednesday, November 25th, the day before Thanksgiving, 2009. Once again, I'm your host, looking for a turkey somewhere in Hong Kong, <laughs> Paul Fox. And there's uh, Kevin, uh, second in second unlucky number in a row, hopefully doesn't mean anything. Wow. And we're here to talk about some of the new films that we've seen in the past week and a little bit of news. So why don't we get to it and jump into some of the news stories? All right, our first little bit of news this week is about the sequel film um, New Moon. Apparently this film is doing gangbusters uh, stateside. According to one news article coming from uh, Reuters, they're saying that the film has, it beat the original Twilight film, the first movie that came out last year, and it's gone on to have the single biggest opening day for this, I guess, for this time period. It's even beaten uh, the Batman sequel, The Dark Knight, um, which is no! pretty amazing when you come to think about it. I mean, what, what, what does this say, Kevin? Is this the power of the tween group or what? The, the power of, the spending power of, uh, the, the target demographic, I'm sure, or yeah. the importance of finding a target demographic, in this case, young girls. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. Have, I, I'm, not, I'm not a Twilight fan, I can say. I, saw, I did see the original movie, and my mom is a big fan of the books, <laughs> and, and, and she, she's gone off to see the movie. I haven't gotten a report from her back yet as to um, how the movie is, but apparently what some critic circles are are throwing around is that it's pretty much a better movie all around than the first one um have you seen have you seen the first one kevin i've seen about five minutes of it when it was shown in a in a film class i mean yeah twilight is now used as an example in film class uh yeah and that's just painful that's painful yeah um and after that, I, I didn't want to watch the other 125. No offense to all the, uh, what was it called now? Twihards out there, but no, I, it's not my cup of tea. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's, I, it's, I, I, uh, I did I did give it a chance. Um, I, did, I didn't watch it in the cinema, but I did watch it on video. And there, you know, the, 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 I can understand why this appeals to the tween crowd and, you know, in particular to, you know, young ladies with the way that they sort of portray the romantic notions of vampirism. Um, but, you know, it, just the way that the author has sort of turned the mythology around, and it, to me, it's it's not like vampires. It's more like, okay, there are these immortal goth kids, you know, who are really cool, and you you want to hang out and be friends with them. And, oh, by the way, they have superpowers. Um, but I, I think it's just uh, opening up for a whole new generation of uh, supermarket romantic novel readers. Yeah. Well, you know, if this, if, if this film does continues to do well, that just means there's probably going to be more of the same. So if you're somebody who likes these films, I guess that's a good thing. Uh, I'm I'm personally looking forward to a return of uh, some actual blood in my vampire stories. <laughs> I'm looking forward to Batman to come back and kick these vampires' asses. Yeah, well, we'll have to wait a while for that one, I think. 
All right, uh, another bit of news coming from the South China Morning Post. Um, the apparently we talked uh, last week or the week before about the Shanghai Disney Park, and the word is now that this is going to be the smallest Disney Park yet. It's going to be smaller than the uh, Hong Kong Park itself, which is already very small. And so some people are actually questioning the wisdom of even going forward with the project. I mean, if the park is ultimately going to be smaller than the Hong Kong Park, why why even build one in in the first place? And apparently there's, I'm sure there's a lot of politics involved with things like zoning and, you know, land usage and things like this. And in the article, it talks a little bit about, you know, the the promotion of the World Expo that's going on. And there are some people groups out there complaining that this is going to cause a lot of unnecessary traffic and things like this. Obviously, it's going to bring in tourist dollars, so some people will see that as as a boon. But I don't know. What do you think about this, Kevin? Smaller Disney than Hong Kong doesn't seem like um, it would be very appealing, uh, at least, yeah, at least I, from the international sense. I mean, I'm sure if you're a Shanghai resident, you know, so similar to me here in Hong Kong, yeah, yeah you'll eventually get around to it but it doesn't sound like it's going to have anything spectacular that's going to draw you in. It's just going to be another, you know, Main Street castle and, you know, Tomorrowland kind of a thing, only even smaller with perhaps less attractions. Yeah, I, I think this is um, another way of Shanghai trying to, I guess, upstage Hong Kong, trying to, um, I don't know if this is a conspiracy theory, but uh, I have a feeling that Hong, uh, Shanghai is in direct competition with Hong Kong. Now that the handover has happened, I think Shanghai is trying to sort of regain its its former reputation as the as the um sort of the Hong Kong of China, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think there's uh, no doubt about that. I mean, I've seen plenty of of editorials and and news articles talking about the idea that even even in even in Beijing, there has been for a while some sympathy towards Shanghai and and promotion and sending. Uh, tax and revenue to Shanghai to help you know prop them up to basically compete with Hong Kong for the title of you know the 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 world city for Asia, which Hong Kong has been for a number of years now. And but the that's, thing is, you know, um, the Hong Kong Disney hasn't really been been making money for the last couple of years. Which, but then I, I believe the the amount of tourists in Hong Kong hasn't really drastically changed after Disney was built. Yeah. So. You know, I think if this proves anything is that if people are going to go to Shanghai, they're not necessarily going to Shanghai for Disney. And if they're coming to Hong Kong, they're not necessarily coming to Hong Kong for Disney. Yeah. So it just sort of lessens the attraction of Disneyland. And I think the more they build, the this just will be the least, the least, the less appeal there will be. Well, and 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 again, it gets into this this whole idea of I guess you'd want to talk a little bit about some theoretical concepts like you know pastiche or postmodernism or whatnot. But if you've been to a Disney park, you've kind of been to a Disney park. We talked about right. this before. If they're not right. going to do anything different to attract people in to Shanghai and it's going to be smaller, you know, what's the purpose? I mean, if, if it was going to be smaller, but they were going to do something radically different, you know, they were just going to try and reinvent the, the idea of the park for the new millennium then it might be rather attractive. It might, you know, at least pull me in, pull some people, I guess, internationally in. Uh, but as I said, I think that just making it small, making it sort of there in Shanghai, maybe it'll pull some of the Shanghai locals in, maybe some people from some of the nearby provinces. But 
other than that, it, it doesn't sound like a very, very wise investment or a very wise development move uh, from my perspective. I mean, if you, especially as you said, if you look at the way that the Hong Kong park here has done uh, since its opening, it hasn't been doing uh, very, very decent business uh, in terms of both local tourism and tourists from the mainland and, and abroad. So I don't know, there's lessons to be learned, but it doesn't seem like anybody's paying attention. Yeah, I think the reason that the Tokyo Park has survived even after the Hong Kong Park was built is because they have uh, Disney Sea. This, I think, Disney Sea is only existing in Tokyo. Is there is there one in Florida, Paul? No, no. There's a, they've got they've got Animal Kingdom, um, and they've got the MGM Studios and Epcot, but they don't really have a sea attraction. They, there was I don't know if it's still there. They used to have a place called Sea World which was right. an aquarium theme, but it wasn't part of Disney. It was a competitor with Disney. I'm not sure right. if they're still there or not. So, Right. Well, Disney Sea in Tokyo is kind of like the um, uh, Disney that's more adult-oriented in that it has less less of the, you know, the the kids stuff, the the, the castle, whatever, is more thrill rides or more yeah. stuff that would appeal to people on dates. And that's something that Tokyo Disneyland has, has sort of um, made its mark with. But look at the Shanghai one, the Hong Kong one. They hadn't, they haven't taken advantage of their location. Yeah. It's really the same thing as every every other Disneyland. So I smell another disaster coming up for Shanghai, yeah. especially since the Shanghai city government is paying for it again. All right, another bit of news, movie-related news this time that we have to talk about is coming out of the Toronto International Film Festival, and they've released a best of decade. Uh, poll, uh, the results of the poll that they took with regard to, uh, I guess it's it's over a period of, a, a selected period of 10 years, and uh, it's a listing of their best films. Kevin, do you want to uh, uh, expand on this story a little bit? Yes, uh, this is especially important for us here at East Screen Rest Screen, because uh, a major, a lot of the uh, films here picked by the um, how many critics do they have? 60, I believe. Uh, sorry, I'm looking at the reporters as I'm speaking here. Um, let's see, 60 film curators, historian, archivists, and programmers from festivals, Cinematheque, and similar organizations around the world participated in this poll. And I'm quoting from the uh, news release here, they got in the Toronto yeah. International Film Festival website. Um, so the film that got the most vote. Uh, with 53 votes, which makes this the best film of the last decade, is um, the Thai film made by Apichatong. Apichat <laughs> What's uh, his first name is Apichatong? Um, congratulations, uh, you, you, you did much better than I would have done. So, kudos, Thank you. kudos to you. Thank you. Uh, Syndromes in a Century, the um, controversial uh, censored film about. Uh, doctors in Thailand uh, that got 53 votes, so it got voted as the number one film of the decade. Now, um, have, have you seen that film? No, no, I, I have not. I, I've seen another film by Apichat Pong um, called uh, Mysterious Object at Noon, which uh, I found too artsy for my liking. Mm -hmm. um, and how about you, Paul? Have you seen anything by Apichat Pong? I have not. I, I cannot say that I have. I'm sorry, Apichapong is just sort of rolling off my tongue now. So I keep saying Apichapong, Apichapong. Um, and and uh, of course, the... Sounds like Tony Jaw's next film. Yeah. The amazing thing with this list is that if you look at the top 10, um, Paul, I believe you can... I'll send you the link to the full list later. Um, at least four of the top 10 films are Asian. We yeah. got... Um, I'm looking at... If I'm, if I'm reading this, the, the, 
the Reuters article that I'm looking at correctly, um, Jia Zhangke's platform is in second place. Is that right? Yes, and his still life is in third place. Yeah. Now I've now I've seen both of those, and I, and I love still life. Still life is, I think, um, an an amazing film for you know what it what it is. I'm glad that to see that a film like that and and a film like Platform is getting some recognition like that. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you know, I, I think in the in in talking about mainstream probably a lot of people have not seen these films. I mean, even even like, you know, the first film that they've listed, I haven't heard of that. I, I don't don't even remember playing at any of the festivals that I've been at. Um, yeah. And I get that sense from some of the other titles as I look down. And I know that I'm not as avid a, a festival goer as, as you or Ross or some of the other people that we watch movies with. But even so, I mean, some of these are, you know, I've never even heard of. And I feel, I feel a little bit, out of the loop. Oh, these are um. Don't worry. Uh, these are very unlikely choices. If you want to talk about a real worldwide critics' choice of the best films of the last I, decade, I mean, because yeah, I, I I don't I don't see the whole list again. I've just got some highlights here in this article. But um, Wong Kar Wai's in the mood for love seems like it's perhaps the most mainstream of the things that oh. are listed. Is that is no, that um, correct? No, number seventeenth, you got uh David Cronenberg's A History of Violence. Okay. Uh tied with that, you got Mulholland Drive, David Lynch. Um, further down the list, you got Pan's Labyrinth, which I'm you've seen, right? Paul? Oh yeah, I, um, I've seen. I, I didn't 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 care for it. It wasn't what I expected. But but I I, do, un I do understand why it's there. Um, he's he's yeah. definitely a, a a director that belongs on the list. Yeah. Uh, Spirited Away is on number twenty five. Really? But uh, oh, there's well, there's yes. a film I can get behind. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing is, you got these films that are actually not so widely, even though they're very respected directors, but they were not widely uh, acclaimed, like such as the two Ho Xiaoxian films, Millennium Mambo and Café Lumiere, which as much as I like Café Lumiere, let's face it, those two movies are boring. Mm. Really, really Well, I mean, I, 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 that all comes down to taste, I guess. I mean, I know some people who absolutely love him as a director and well, love everything that he's done. done Yes, Ho Shan has a much stronger work because these two films were actually not some of his. They were actually some of his most panned works. Yeah, I think I believe. Um, and a uh, really shocking uh placing here is um Edward Yang's E. E. Um, I I think is easily one of the best films ever made. Um, but of course that might be personal taste again. But it's only at twenty first place, uh, number twenty one, mm. with only eighteen votes, and I thought that was an amazing film. Mm. Um, is it better than In the Mood for Love? Um, I dare say, on a storytelling level, on a filmmaking level, um, even on acting level, even though it doesn't have big stars like Tony Leung and Maggie Chan, I believe E E is overall better from the In the Mood for Love. Mm. So I I think in the end, um, some of these seems to be um, sort of a what appeals to more of a because i don't i don't know a full list of people who voted but it seems like a very sort of a western oriented taste we got here these yeah. sort of um when they pick the, the asian picks here are sort of um sort of the artsy european oriented western oriented art film style films yeah as opposed to the stuff that are more more well respected here within asia i think because yi has a as as much as in the Mood for Love is very well respected in here. Yi Yi, I, I believe, is uh has a better reputation as a as a film, as a 
overall than the same in the Love because let's face it, Wong Kar Wai, even in Hong Kong, he's sort of uh, not a really a big uh, favor here. Yeah. Well, well, let me let me ask this: Is um um how long is the list? What 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 does it go to? Um, it goes down to thirty, but there are many many ties. Yeah. So um, so does yeah. does Wong Jing appear in the list anywhere? Any anywhere? Honestly, I would I. I would have petitioned for uh, I corrupt all cops, but sadly, no. <laughs> so, so there's, there's no like how to pick up girls or uh, romancing star. No, it's only the last decade, so uh, it would have been like. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. See, I'm I'm living color. The I'm color living, of the truth. I'm living back in the '80s still. What what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, damn you, Guillermo del Toro! <laughs> you took away Wang Jing's place in the list. All right. Well, we'll post some links up so you can take a look at the list if you are interested in that kind of thing. And I think that after looking at the list, there's definitely a lot more that I need to get out and watch at some point. There's just so little time and so many movies to see. Let's move on to our East Screen topics for this week. This week for East Screen, we've got two films to talk about. Uh, the first film coming from Japan is the film Kaiji. Now, I haven't seen this, uh, but Kevin's seen it. So, Kevin, you want to give us a bit of a synopsis and some of your thoughts on this film? Yes, uh, Kaiji is uh, the latest uh, film based on a comic. Um, and the big draw here is not only... Um, the draw of the actual comic itself is also the um, presence of star Fujiwara Tetsuya. Uh, if those who don't know, he was the star of uh, Death Note. Um, I think one of the most, one of the more successful um, comic adaptations yeah, out there. And also he was, um, I, I have some friends who probably haven't seen Death Note, but they've seen Battle Royale. He was, he was yes. the, the main protagonist in Battle Royale too, wasn't he? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so actually he's been, acting for quite a long time um and also uh some people who who have followed this film will know that um he is here reunited with um ken ichi matsuyama his co-star who played l in death note but um but obviously he's only a supporting character i'll go into that later um kaiji uh is the name of the main character uh obviously kaiji is sort of a slacker in tokyo um and he helped a friend taking on an enormous debt. So when his friend uh, bailed on him, the the uh, loan company came came and uh, essentially made is making him try to pay back this uh, really big debt. So with no way to pay, the the company offers him a way to um, eradicate all his debt by going on a ship. And um, it's essentially, uh, if he gets through all the games on the ship. Uh, as uh, as the film has advertised, if he gets through the games, then he can, you know, win all the money and eradicate his debt and uh, come out a winner. But of course, the the story is a lot more complicated than that. Uh, it starts off very well. Uh, it starts off with a very interesting uh, card game, but quickly sort of descends into um, what the, the the sort of conspiracy behind this ship 
Uh, I'm not going to sp spoil any much uh, any further, even though this is only 40 minutes into the film uh, of 130 minutes when they reveal the conspiracy. But um, I believe it's something that the, the audience should go and discover for themselves. Um, so when, as if I can jump yes. in, when you say that that they go on their ship to play games, is this a is this simply like a gambling ship? Um, is this like like a gambling genre kind of a film or do these like become games of death? Well, to because I, I haven't read the comic, so when I saw the advertisement, I thought, yeah, it was going to be a series of games in this in this ship, and and the 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 stakes get higher and higher as they go along. That's what it seems like, but um, it sort of turns into something a lot more than that. The the ship sequence uh lasts a lot shorter than you might think, and the story actually spans a much longer than you think, and it's much bigger than one might think. Um, I guess yes, as as uh you mentioned before, Paul, yes, these games. It does feature several games, several games that require smarts, um, and they do uh, become end up becoming more and more uh, dangerous as they go along. But the problem is, um, what you might expect from a film like this is that these games might actually take real smarts to to figure out, and that the audience um, uh, mind might seem sort of stimulated by trying to go with the character, trying to figure out what these games are. But tr the truth is, the film only has three game sequences, and um, the first, the first one is the most interesting. It's um, it's a game where um, each person holds twelve cards and they're all um, paper, rock, scissor, and they have to play against another player and uh, and try and get stars through that the whole system. It's very interesting and it really does stimulate the audience's mind as they try to figure out a best strategy to try and help this protagonist get through the stage. But the the games later on, they they seem to try and um, make the point of the film to 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 sort of emphasize the point of the film about winners and losers in life and things like that rather than really trying to um sim stimulate um any kind of thought mm -hmm. um the film is is very entertaining um the last game the ye card game as you one might have seen in the trailers is kind of fun to watch even though it doesn't really um there's not many many ways to think about how to play it it only has five cards and uh, again we'll spoil here but if you if you watch it you will know that it doesn't really take much thinking to get through more than three games um but but nevertheless uh the game sequences are obviously the longest parts of the film and they are fairly entertaining except for the one in the middle which sort of carries on the melodrama stuff too long um Tetsuya Fujiwara is very interesting here because he's trying to do the, uh, it is based on a comic, so um, he's trying to do this overacting comic thing, which is something I'm not used to from the uh, guy who survived Battle Royale and from the villain of, of Death Note. Um, I've seen Fujiwara overact before, but not in the way he does here, so it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of strange to see him like that, but nevertheless, he's a very strong main character to follow and it's kind of fun to watch him um also you have um other DTT supporting characters also fun to watch especially the main bad guy um i forget his name here but it's very obvious in the film he's he's doing the sort of liu kai chi good overacting thing if you know what i mean Paul. Mm, yeah so, so he's very over the top yes now we were we've talked about some gambling films in the past um most recently poker king one of the one of the problems i have with with games or, or films that are centered on games and gambling is that after a while you, you kind of know, cause there are like only so many winning hands and there are so many, you know, suits that, that you can get to beat certain other suits. And uh, we were talking before, like with poker King, how 
the tension a lot of times isn't really there because you know it's more about the tension between the characters rather than the cards because you kind of figure out uh what cards need need to be drawn in order to win um and and i you know i guess i'm speaking from a history of watching you know Kalyan fat and god of gamblers and all of the successive gambling films that have come out since then you know they they've, they've only got so many ways that they can sort of film these these last moment pulling out the last cards kind of sequences um, there's definitely quite a few of those here yes yeah. so but i mean how do they how do they handle that that kind of tension here do you think it works pretty well or is it is it a bit tired well if you've read a japanese manga you know when they when they drag out a game sequence or a fight sequence or a race sequence in terms of initial d yeah. you know they drag it on for issues and issues and volumes and volumes and um and a lot of these games are narrated through voiceover from the characters observing them and that's the same technique they use here, at least for the uh, very final game. So there are really no real surprises. Uh, in terms of filming, it's very traditional. But again, because of that narration thing where they have each character sort of narrating their own thoughts, it's it's very hard to build any real type of suspense. Mm. And and even though the game itself is an original game, it's not a, a poker poker game or anything like that. It, the E card is its own game system. So that's something interesting to look at. But the thing is, like I said, that game itself, there's not really enough combos to make it last more than three games, which is exactly what happened here in the film. Mm -hmm. um, but so, is it, so it seems to me if these are new games, then is the does the audience then lack information about the rules that you know makes it so that the the protagonist can suddenly come up with a a win that could not have been been you know sort of foreseen simply because the audience isn't given the information about the rules of play or are the games simple enough that it you, you can kind of figure things out and then it just comes down to being clever well because of the first game is um is it's essentially paper scissors rock on card mm -hmm. so that's fairly easy to figure out it's really about the system of how these players qualify to to win to get to the next stage um the second game is um has no skill whatsoever it's, it's purely physical so there's no real stakes for the audience to get involved in it. Um, the third game, it's um, they, they, it's very simple because, like I said, it's only five cards on each side, so there's, there can only be so many combos. So it's fairly easy to figure out. Um, and um, the way you capture it, um, it's really the pacing is fairly well during these game sequences, so that um, they spend a lot of time on one game. So then you have plenty of time to sort of get yourself involved in it. Mm. And 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 but then the, the problem is that um like you were suggesting, Paul, that the, the final hand, it doesn't really require the game itself doesn't require any particular smarts or any strategizing. So the the character end up using these building this whole really complicated set of uh strategies that doesn't really have anything to do with the game. It's just really uh, out to manipulate the next the the other player, sort of like the Wanjing God of Gamblers film. Mm. Where um instead it, it, instead of luck, uh the the good guy uses a strategy that is less less dirty than the bad guy in order to trick him into losing. Mm. So that kind of thing. I see. Yeah, but um, uh, again, I haven't read the comics, so I was kind of put off by the fact that it wasn't really what I thought it would be. Um, but I'm sure fans of the comic will, will find this interesting because it is their their comic. They know where it was exactly it's going, so it, it is the their favorite comic being put on screen. So I'm sure they would like it a lot. It's very entertaining.
but for me, I was a little put off at first, but nevertheless, it's very entertaining and it's it's a pretty fun film. Um, and I would actually sign up for a sequel. I would like to see what what games the the creators come up with for their later stages. Uh, so Kaiji, um, a fine origin film, but um, is it really one of the best manga comic adaptations out there? No, it's it's fairly average. What what how what would you say in terms of the body of the work of of the main actor? And you know, with Battle Royale, um, Death Note, and then this, would you say this comes in sort of a third place or a second place? Uh, the thing is, I'm not really in love with the Death Note films. I'm not a big fan of it. And uh, I never really had a good, had liked Fujiwara Tetsuya very much because he always seems like um, an over-serious actor. Like when he even, I've seen him doing a nature special on NHK one, even then he's overacting. Mm -hmm. So I've never really been into his, his uh, performances. But I would say here is um, sort of the most fun I've ever seen him in. It seems like he's, he's kind of having fun doing the overacting comic thing. Um, so it's interesting to watch him here, but does it change my opinion of him? Not really. I still don't really like him much as an actor. I think he's too intense for his age. You know, some I, I know that some people do like him a lot, and um, I really liked him in in both the Death Notes and Battle Royale. So I'd be interested. I'm I'm somewhat interested to see this film now after you've talked about it. I'm a lot more intrigued. So I think uh, a lot of people also might want to know Ken Ichi Matsuyama, uh, aka L's involvement in the film. Um, like the advertisement suggested, he plays only a supporting character, but he does sort of get his stay in the sun. Um, does he really excel here? Does he know he, he actually sort of distracts from the film that he suddenly shows up and for that amount of time? But um, yeah, fans of uh, Keiichi Machiyama should watch out. He does, he does have a fairly major role in the section that he's in. Does he eat a lot of sugar? Or no, no, I wish he did. I wish he had more fun with it. But no, he's a fairly straightforward character. All right, well, let's talk about our next film, this one coming from Hong Kong, and this is the latest Wong Jing film, To Live and Die in Mong Kok, starring Nick, Nick Chung, uh, among others. Um, Kevin, why don't you give us a quick synopsis of the film, and uh, we've both seen this, so I'll let you start off with some of your thoughts about it, and then I'll jump in with some commentary as well. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, the truth is, uh, as you saw, Paul, I fell asleep for about twenty minutes in the film, but I still have a good idea. Of, you, you uh, were, you were, you were not the only one. The person sitting next to me, who <laughs> I don't want to name, I'll simply say he's been on the show before. <laughs> uh, he also nodded off for a while, and but you know, hey, it happens to the best of us. So, but no, let, let, let's hear um, uh, some some. Tell us a little bit about just just a general intro to the story, and then what you thought about it, and as a whole sure sure um to live and die mong kok is uh wong jing's return to series films after uh on his magic secret service which i'm even ashamed to uh to say the title um it starts nick uh the the, the gimmick is that it stars the four best actors according to last year's hong kong film awards uh you have uh nick chun best actor for b stalker you have uh uh bao hei jing uh who was best actress from uh, the way we are Cheng Lai Wan, the best supporting actress, also from the way we are, and uh, best supporting actor Liu Kai Chi from Beastalkers. So yeah, two two versus two, uh, two to Beastalkers, two to the way we are. Anyway, here they come together uh, for Wang Jing's latest uh, serious film, quote unquote serious, about um, a gangster played by Nick Chen who was sent to jail for a very long time for uh, pulling off a a, a triad assassination 
um, but then in the in, during the assassination, uh, he was shot by Liu Kai Chi's character when it was, um, and he essentially became mentally ill after that. Uh, so twenty years, I believe, twenty years later, um, he's released uh, back into Mong Kok, um, but because of his mental illness, he believes that uh, Mong Kok has become a sort of prison that he can't get out of. Uh, so he sees, he feels like he's stuck there, um, even though he's not really, uh, I'm sure all of us feel like we're stuck there once in a while anyway. Um, anyway, uh, meanwhile, another subplot, you have a uh, Monica Mock as a, as a mainland prostitute, uh, who's, who's a, me um, mentally retarded sister played by Ming Yao has, uh, sort of been kidnapped to Hong Kong. So after she saves her, um, they, thanks to the help of, uh, the pimp with a heart of gold played by Wong Jing. Uh, they sort of try and survive in Mongkok despite the, the bullying of this crazy gang boss. Um, and of course, Bao Hei Jing uh, here plays uh, Nick Chen's mother who has uh, Alzheimer's disease and is convinced that uh, his her son went to Holland. So when Nick Chen shows up, he can only pretend to be his friend. But of course, uh, eventually their the mother and some relationship sort of they reconcile and things become okay. Um, although something happens, of course, uh, essentially, eventually the two plots meet, um, and Nick Chen and the prostitute fall in love as far as I know. And, um, but of course they still have to all face this uh, crazy gangster who is trying to make his way to the top. Um, I think that's a pretty, uh, good idea of the plot, but, uh, the thing is it was advertised as a uh, Wong Jing's first cult film. Uh, I know you've seen the posters. Um, the reason is, uh, really the, the visual style of the film, uh, is shot on HD. It's also co-directed by Billy Chung, who used the video format on his last film, uh, Hong Kong Bronx. Um, and also they, there's a lot of uh, sort of special, cheap special effects used here, as well as uh, uh, a lot of uh, really amateur framing. Filters. Uh, and a filters. Lot. Lots yes, and filters. lots of filters. Tons and tons of filters. Uh, tons of really strange framing tons of uh, handheld, tons of editing, which is part of the reason why I fell asleep because in one scene, you will have about five different angles of the same thing going on, cut about 20 times. And uh, for me, it just, it, it just seems like it's Wong Jing uh, obviously intentionally trying to be an amateur filmmaker. And the result is just, it's really tiring to watch. Um, I remember you, Paul, telling me that you didn't blame me for falling asleep because it was exhausting you as well, right? The visual style. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, there were a couple scenes where I was actually getting dizzy because it was just bouncing around so much, and it was it was difficult to stay focused on what was going on, and it was difficult to follow along with the dialogue that was going on in the mm -hmm. background as it was uh, just shifting and shifting and shifting. And that was, I would say, in in somewhere in the first quarter or third of the film and then sort of by the end they got away from that a little bit and it it became easier to follow but those that initial some of that initial storytelling was just really really hard to take um and i'm not sure I, if they I were trying to go it. for a for a for something you know like um you know some kind of wong car Wai chunking express kind of a feel or, or what they were doing but uh, there was just there was just some some aspects of it that visually did not did not come across well uh, for the type of storytelling they were trying to do. Well, being in film school, uh, I can definitely tell you they're trying to do the amateur digital filmmaking look. Um, well, well and, but the well, thing is, the problem is that the, the, the problem is the thing is, is it's not hard to be amateur. 
know, it's you don't have to do anything special to be amateur. But here right. it was like they were they were they were intentionally trying to do something, and I'm not sure what it was, but it it was very distracting for the like the first third of the film, at least for me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it it looked new for about five minutes. You you're thinking, wow, that's interesting. And Wang Jing's never done it. But then about five minutes, and you're like, okay, I kind of want the want oh Wang Jing back. This is really distracting. Yeah. Um, and the problem is that as as much as he's trying to sort of get himself out of the box with his visual look, the plot and the storytelling is still really the same old Wang Jing triad story. Yeah. Well, you know? I think that for me, the most interesting thing was Nick Chung's character because. He was very good in the film. I loved his character, and I loved the way that Wang Jing used his character. This this idea of this guy who was, you know, sort of a a badass young triad kid ends up getting shot, becomes schizophrenic. He basically has a split personality, and mm -hmm. he shifts from being this very sort of humble, quiet, um, laid back, nice guy to the, this angry youth. That was, I guess, sort of the personality he had when he was young and he got shot some 30 years before. And so, yeah, the, 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 the main issue is him coming out after 30 years and finding Mong Kok being completely different from the Mong Kok that he remembers. And I think that that and his sort of trying to readjust into society, that was all really interesting. And they could have taken that a lot farther. Um, I think that that you know, the relationship he had with his mother, um, you know, they, they could have, they could have built on that much, much more than they did. And, you know, by the spites, I say halfway through the film, it starts to take on some very traditional gangster movie twists. You've got this whole subplot that's basically copying a lot of what you see in election with, you know, the, these, these different triad heads <coughs> um, trying to support, two teams you know you've got the you've got basically two two players who are jockeying for the the head position and because of his notoriety nick chung's character is seen as carrying a lot of weight so both of these guys are trying to get you know nick chung to throw their support behind him because that will sort of carry the rest of the votes in their favor um but then yeah you've i mean the the two guys who are jockeying for position um uh, who who is who is the who is the college guy? Um, uh, Patrick Tam plays yeah, the college. Pat Patrick Tam. He's got a minor role as sort of one of the one of the guys up for the to be the head, and he's sort of this smooth, educated, um, you know, good good looking guy. But he's also you can also tell he's a bit of a jerk. He's um, Lewis cool. Let's face it, he's and, Lewis yeah, cool. Yeah, and, and then on the other hand, you've got this really loud mouth, heavy set, boisterous guy you know very chauvinistic um very jerky in his attitude so neither one of them are good but but it's obvious as we were saying i mean the the, the jerky guy the one who's causing the problems for monica mock and all the other characters and all the things that he does it's you, you just look at a character like this and you go who in their right mind would support this guy to lead the organization because he's such right. a moron you know so it, it it's that very sort of traditional triad loudmouth bad boy that you might expect to see um like Xing Fu Fuyan playing back in the 1980s and the 1990s you know back when 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 it worked you know but now it's just yeah. kind of oh we've it, it been there done that um and unfortunately that's how a lot of the film ends up playing out is sort of a been there 
and done that. And I think it could have been a lot more. Again, I am somebody who really likes Wong Jing. Wong Jing made some films, as I've talked about before, that for me really defined Hong Kong cinema back in the 80s and the 90s. And it just seems like he doesn't try anymore. It's like, I don't know what happened, but he's lost that edge that his films used to have. And I don't know why that is. I, I think he's just, he knows, he's a very smart guy and he's, he oh, like he's super, he's super smart. You know, I've gone to, right. I've gone to see, hear him talk and, and I've actually asked him a few questions about his thoughts about, you know, local films and having to sort of conform to mainland regulations. And he really knows the business. He knows, you know, from a financial aspect, what he has to do to get films to make money. Yeah, I think the problem is that he knows that very well. And that's why if he had kept telling this, this story about a mentally deranged man um, in Mongkok with his mother, um, if he had kept going down that route, I think he knows that the audience would be turned off. So that's why he had to sort of resort to this action-oriented um, uh, triad story. It's it's very frustrating, but I think that's that's really what he was thinking when he when he wrote the second half of the film. Yeah. Um, um, and it's it's just a same it's it's a shame because I again I really I I went into this you know hopeful and again much much in the same way as uh, on His Majesty's Secret Service I came out kind of just scratching my head going what happened what happened um, and you know I I don't know if you've seen his 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 work from 1994 um, the one with Jackie Chung to live and die in Tim Tatsui. I really love that film. I mean, the, the, again, um, it's it's a similar story. You've got triads. You've got in this case, it's it's more like a Infernal Affairs and Undercover Cop, and you've got Jackie Chang and Wu Qianlin and uh, Tony Lang Kafai. And again, it's it's a lot of, in, in a same in in a similar way. It's a lot of the same things. It's it's the urban environment. It's these characters. It's guys being jerky. You know, it's a guy wanting to sort of get out of the life that he's in and find escape. And it, it, arguably, that's a much better film than this is, both and even though it was done over a decade ago. Um, and, and yeah, and ultimately, I think it's observations about Ma and Kok, You know, you got to talk about the old cinemas being gone, and I don't think it really delves into sort of the the the, the neighborhood of a Ma and Kok. Yeah, yeah. Well, it it, it it starts to. It just doesn't. It doesn't really go very deep into it. It it could have it could have really taken that a lot further too. I think. Yeah, I think it sets up a lot of interesting things, which made me look forward to the film. But it's just never delivered, sadly. Let's move on and talk about our West Screen film for this week, and that is the new animated feature, A Christmas Carol, um, coming from 
the mind of Robert Zemeckis and starring Jim Carrey. Um, now I've seen this film, Kevin. You've also you saw this film today, is that correct? Yes, I now, saw did, it this morning. Did you see the 3D IMAX version or the normal version? No, I saw the uh, uh, normal 3D version. The normal 3D uh, version. But, yes. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I I guess if you know the, the <coughs> Christmas Carol story uh, from Charles Dickens. This would be nothing new, but basically it tells the story of an old miserly man, Ebenezer Scrooge, who, because of his miserly ways, um, he becomes he, he is visited one Christmas Eve by his old partner, um, Jacob Marley, who comes and gives him a warning saying, you better change because your, your hoarding of money and your miserly ways... Um, they're going to basically be the end of you and you'll end up like me, sort of this ghoulish, ghastly spirit um, who has to wander for eternity. Um, and in going along with this warning, he is then visited by the three very famous ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, uh, Christmas present, and Christmas future. Um, and then after being visited by these ghosts, he goes on to learn the true meaning of Christmas. So this is a time-old Christmas story that's been told countless times. I, I don't even really know the exact number of, of versions that have been done, uh, but I'm a big fan of this. This is one of the things that I always watch in some form um, at this time of year, and usually, usually multiple multiple versions. I'm a big fan of these old black-and-white Alistair Sim uh, version from the 50s, Scrooge. That's one that I, I always end up watching at some point. Uh, there's another version that I like to watch. Actually, there are two other versions I like to watch, and we're going to talk about both of those uh, a little bit later. But for this version, um, you've got very, the very traditional story. So if you've seen it, you know it. There's nothing really new that's done here with that story. But what they do uh, visually um, is is very traditional. Uh, I, as watching this, I was very much reminded of the old black and white version um, and remembering seeing the old black and white version by Alistair Sim and being scared out of my mind at a few points by that. Um, and then realizing that, you know, this is a really scary story <coughs> because it's it's about ghosts. It's about being haunted. It's just, you know, it, it, over time, it's it's been lightened up a little bit. The mood of it and the tone has been lightened up a little bit in some of the later movies that came out. But this is really a very frightening thing, and they capture that here very, very well. I, there were moments in this when I was watching, I was going, my gosh, if I had kids, I'd be, I'd be terrified bringing them to see this because there are some terrifying moments. Um, and then you have the whole technical aspect. This film is sort of made for 3D. Uh, I saw the IMAX version, and I was simply blown away by, by the visuals. I mean, they are doing things with the characterization and the animation that is just mind-blowing. And in terms of facial recognition and capturing and the emotions and the expressions that they can do now, it, it's, it's an amazing film. So I, I cannot recommend this more highly than uh, anything I've seen so far this year. So if you are somebody who really likes Christmas stories and you're somebody like me who ends up watching these, these you know, certain things time and time again, this is something that is a, should be a must-see for you. Um, and, and I don't want to fawn on the film too much because, you know, it, it's, it's not, in th there, there are a couple moments that things do drag on for a little bit, but it's very, again, it's very, very, um, 
it's very it's it adheres very closely um, to a lot of what's in the text. Um, many of the famous lines are present. The representations of some of the spirits are very good. And the one thing that amazed me <clears throat> was that the spirits themselves are all performed by Jim Carrey as well. Mm-hmm. And especially the spirit of spirit of um, Christmas past and and Christmas present, I was thinking, oh, who's doing those voices? I, I'm trying to figure out who those actors are. And then finally, I got home and I looked it up, and it was him. He did, um, he did Ebenezer Scrooge, and then he did all of the ghosts as well. Um, you've you've also got some other people uh, doing cameos in here. You've got um, Colin Firth. Uh, you've got Harry Ells, uh, Robin Wright Penn, Bob Hoskins uh, lending their voice as well. Uh, a lot of people were, you know, gave very high praise to Polar Express. I liked Polar Express, but technically this is a very much a superior film uh, from my perspective. So Kevin, what, what did you think? Uh, let, let's, let's get some, some fresh insight here. Um, usually I, I have a thing against 3D films. Um, I think they're always trying to just throw stuff at you to, to make you sort of get involved visually. But um, here I have to say, I started with it started with the Avatar trailer in 3D. I was just blown away um, by what they can do now, and and then and then follow this film where you see such amazing depth depth in the in the animation, and and yeah, the 3D has really come a long way. I think the 3D animation because I remember watching Beowulf uh, a few years ago in 3D and wasn't really that impressed. But here I think. Um, it's great. Uh, I know the Christmas Carol story very well, as as you do, Paul. But um, it's 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 good that Robert Zemeckis here didn't try to update the story anyway. It, it really sticks to his roots, but it updates it in the technology uses to tell it. So it it's a very uh, amped up version, but it's still very true to the to the original one. Yeah. Um, and like actually, I I, I saw I, I saw it was Jim Carrey doing all these spirits, but maybe because I knew it before, and it was he had a very interesting performance here. Um, he was adapting to British. Uh, I mean, he did an English accent, an Irish accent, and a Scot- Scottish accent. Yeah, the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah so so the, the voices uh, impressed me here. The animation was very impressive, but um, for me, it did drag on a little bit because I think I knew I knew the story already. So there was really no surprise for me, except for the sort of the scarier moments I didn't see coming. Because the only version I've seen, I'll talk later. Um, I didn't remember it being just scary. So um, yes, uh, I was I was uh, kind of surprised at the at the um, how frightening it is. And I remember a kid. There was only one kid, real you know, under fifteen kids that stood behind me, and I think he was constantly talking to his mother, part because he was scared of his wits, mm. maybe. Um, and uh, but. No, I, I think it's, but I think in the end, the film ended up being a very good time. I had a very good time watching the film. Um, it was fun, but um, I'm not quite at the level where where you, Paul, would say it's it's as um, well as, as highly recommended as any other film this year. I think it's a fun Christmas film, but I still hope that Robert Zemeckis would go back to making live action films. Yeah, yeah, me. I'm sure many people, and 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 you know, to to have a bit of you know disclosure here. I am a huge fan of of holiday films. As I mentioned before, there are certain films that I watch at certain times of the year, every year. Um, and for me, Christmas Carol is one of those films. So to see this done in the way it was done, to see the technology applied, um, it was just very exciting for me. Um, yeah. And in part because I I have a I have a slight vision problem. I, I have a slight degree of color blindness. 
And uh, in the old days, I'm talking about the very old days, back in like Jaws 3D old, <laughs> um, I could never watch those films. I could never see the 3D because the, the degree of, I have a degree of uh, red-green colorblindness. And those, if you'll remember those glasses, you had a red lens and you had a green lens. And it was the combination of those two that was sort of the basis for the 3D technology. And that ne they never worked for me. And I would get a huge headache after sitting with those on my face for like 15 minutes or so. So I was never really able to enjoy 3D until they sort of got this new, newer technology uh, worked out. And the, the, they've improved the glasses, uh, e even from the 3D films they were showing a few years back. Um, the glasses they had at for some of them were like small and, and tiny. The glasses they had at the IMAX theater were like these ski goggles. They were huge and they're very, very comfortable. I, after a while, I didn't even notice they were on. Um, mm. But I would, I would agree with you. I, I'd say that, you know, if you're not a huge fan of Scrooge, uh, the story or Dickens or that sort of time period, you know, the sort of the Oliver Twist Industrial Revolution time period, because, um, you know, it's the things that that they have going on in the background of, of a lot of what's going on that caught my attention were, were really amazing too. It, it, you know, the attention to detail here is just fantastic. But if you know the story, you know, you, you might be a bit bored with it if you're mm -hmm. not that that interested in seeing what they do with this visually. I mean, so, you know, do take that, that I, you know, my review with a little bit of a grain of salt. And if, if you're not somebody who enjoys the Scrooge story, you this is probably not something that you'd, you'd want to waste a uh, couple hours of your time on. But if you do enjoy it, again, it's a, it's a perfect holiday film. It's very, very well executed. The thing that interests me, though, is I'll be very interested to see how this plays out when it comes to, you know, DVD. Um, mm. And I've recommended to everybody that I've, I've talked to since then to go see the 3D version, the IMAX version, if you can. Because you were talking about Avatar previously, and I think we mentioned it before, a lot of the things I heard about the Avatar trailer were that if you saw it in a normal cinema, you were not that impressed with it. But if you saw yeah. the 3D version, you were blown away. Yes. And I'm wondering if it's going to be the, if it's the same kind of effect here that if you watch this movie in a normal cinema, you know, and you'll be like, eh, okay, no big deal. And and I'm wondering if there's that much of a difference between the two versions that, you know, the depth of the depth that you're getting and and the, the, the image resolution and everything else that's going along with the 3D version is so much more to draw you in that you'll have a completely different experience with the film than you would in a normal version, as people were saying they had with the Avatar. I, I think so. I think so. Because I wasn't, I mean, I was going to watch Avatar no matter what. But I wasn't completely convinced of how technologically advanced it's supposed to be until I saw the trailer this morning in 3D. Yeah. And I think Zemeckis here, he obviously framed everything for 3D to, a, to the point where I think the film would just look, uh, no pun intended, flat. Yeah. Which is when you watch it in 2D. Like Up, Up, which I saw in 3D, I thought as beautiful as it was in 3D, I think the film worked just as well when it's flat in 2D. But I think here, like I said, the the framing is so, um, uh, what's the word? Intentional is so um, intricate, made for the 3D format that I doubt it would work just as well uh, when it's not in 3D. Mm. 
before I draw nearer to that stone, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of things that must be? Or are the only shadows of things that might be? Let's move on. We're running a bit long on time and get on to our Flying Buddha picks of the week. <clears throat> and so in the spirit of holiday, I mean, holiday movies, that is, tomorrow being Thanksgiving and Christmas fast approaching, um, both of our picks are related back to uh, A Christmas Carol, which we just finished talking about. Um, so I'll start off. My pick is going to be for Scrooged. This is the Bill Murray update of uh, Christmas Carol, um, directed by Richard Donner back in 1988. And this is one of my, this is again one of those films that I end up watching at some point every Christmas. Um, I'm a pretty big Bill Murray fan. I've always liked him. I've liked his style of humor. I like what, I like the, 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 the characterization and the attitude that he brought to um, the character of Frank Cross that he plays, um, which is a He's basically a TV executive, and he is producing, he is in charge of producing this live Christmas special of a production of Scrooge. That's right. It all starts on Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve on IBC. You'll love it. Oh, my gosh. Does that suck? Oh, we have spent $40 million on a live TV show. You guys have got an ad with America's favorite old fart reading a book in front of a fireplace. Now, I have to kill all of you. Um, but he's a real bear of a boss. Nobody likes him. And he ends up basically going through his own Scrooge story, and it's basically a reinterpretation he gets visited by, uh, again, the three ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future, um, and with, which are each played in you know somewhat of a modernized fashion. The ghost of Christmas past is a taxi driver who takes him in his taxi cab back to, the, back to his past. Um, the, the, the great and hilarious Carol Kane, <coughs> um, she plays um, the ghost of Christmas present um, as sort of this sugar plum fairy with a with a bad sort of new york attitude um and it, it's got it's got other people um all types of cameos karen allen john forsyth um uh, alfrey alfrey woodward and they really mix around some of the characters uh bobcat goldthwait is in it with a a very sort of subdued role from the typical roles that he's in but he's sort of takes on one aspect of the bob cratchit character and uh, again, it's it's the same story. It's brought up sort of up to date. It's modernized, but it's basically the same framework. And if you're somebody who likes Bill Murray and that that type of sort of humor that he uses uh, in his dialogue and in his manner, then this is a film that I think you would you would enjoy. If you haven't seen it, you should give it a look. It is quite dated. As I said, it, is, it was back in 1988. And one of the gags in the film um, is he's he's giving out Christmas presents to everybody and he's got a choice of a towel or a VCR, which at the time, you know, a VCR was sort of like the top of the line, you know, expensive gift to give somebody. Um, but, you know, it's like today, who would give anybody a VCR? So 
Uh, some of the some of the context is is quite dated, but it's still a fun film. Kevin, what's your pick for us this week? Uh, my pick would be a different version, a more uh, even more kid friendly version of the Christmas Carol story. Um, I'm not sure how uh, how well known the Muppets are outside uh, American Paul. Do you have any idea? Well, I think I think that a lot of people will recognize some of the Sesame Street characters at the very least. Um, I'm mm-hmm. not sure about the, you know, because there have been a number of Muppet movies, um, and I don't think I don't know how much play the Muppet Show got in terms of uh, overseas overseas play. But for sure, if you're not a, if you're not familiar with who the Muppets are, just do a quick YouTube search, and you can find lots of lots of clips of the Muppets. Okay, so risking that, uh, I'm gonna recommend the Muppet Christmas Carol. Um, I remember watching this uh, again in 1993, 1994 when I was a kid when I first moved to America. So this is my first uh, exposure to the Christmas Carol story, and it's always been my favorite. Um, this time, Ebenezer Scrooge is played by Michael Caine, which is uh, really one of the best choices, I think, for the character, even today, if you think about it. Um, and here, uh, uh, next to Michael Caine, every, all the other characters, including Cratchit, um, Tiny Tim, even Tiny, uh, Cratchit's wife, uh, even the narrators, they're all replaced by the Muppet characters. Um, so the story remains the same, um, and it's also very, the time period is, is sticks to its roots, uh, Victorian England. But um, it adds a it, what it added is a musical sequences, of course, uh, being a Muppet film, and uh, also some Muppet jokes, essentially. And um, and as much as I like the Robert Zemeckis version, I think this will always be sort of my idea or my favorite version of Christmas Carol one because it's the first one I was I, I watched, and I think this the really as even though it, it is retains some of the scarier uh, aspects of the spirits and the ghosts. Um, I still think this is a very the truly kid, much more kid-friendly version than the Zemeckis version. Yeah. Um, I'm sure now that I've turned, I haven't seen this movie for years, a decade or so, but being an adult, I'm sure it might be a little different now, even though it's, uh, I've grown appreciation watching Michael Caine um, as an actor now. Um, and apparently this is one of his favorite roles. So uh, th- even though it was sort of his downtime, um, I think um, for kids, they would really, really like, whether they know the Muppet or not, I think they would really, truly uh, enjoy this version because of uh, a very good balance of uh, humor and the serious aspect. Just like in the Zemeckis version, there's an injection of the sort of Jim Carrey, uh, very deadpan humor. Yeah. Here, it's a very broad sort of Muppet-based uh, humor. Like you have um, Rizzo the Rat and Gonzo as your as your guide. And yeah. of course, you got some jokes about, you know, uh, the size of Rizzo the Rat and things like that. I don't really remember much of it, but to me, yeah, um, still the most charming version of, uh, and the most kid-friendly version of Christmas Carol you can find. Hello! Welcome to the Muppet Christmas Carol. I am here to tell the story. And I am here for the food. My name is Charles Dickens. And my name is Rizzo the Rat. Hey, wait a second. You're not Charles Dickens. I am too. No, a blue furry Charles Dickens who hangs out with a rat. Absolutely. Charles Dickens was a 19th century novelist. A genius. Oh, you were too kind. Why should I believe you? Well, because I know the story of a Christmas carol like the back of my hand. Prove it. All right. Um, there's a little mole on my thumb. And, uh... A scar on my wrist from when I fell off no, my bike. No, 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 Don't tell us your hand. Tell us the story. Oh, oh, thank you. Yes. <clears throat> the Marleys were dead to begin with. Well, well pardon me? 
That's how the story begins, Rizzo. The Marleys were dead to begin with. Oh. As dead as a doornail. That's a good beginning. It's creepy and kind of spooky. Oh, thank you, Rizzo. You're welcome, Mr. Dickens. I almost considered recommending this film as my pick as well. I love the Muppets. I grew up with the Muppets. I loved the Muppet show. I've liked all of the Muppet movies. Um, this is a a great movie. There's a there's definitely a lot of Muppet in jokes too, which might be <laughs> a little bit hard for people who have not had exposure to the Muppets to follow. Um, you know, for for example, if I remember correctly, um, Marley Marley the, the ghost of Marley Scrooge's partner is actually played by the two old men who are yeah. or they were originally hecklers in in the audience in the Muppet show. Um, ah, I so, never got that. Yeah, and so so you know that if you'd watched the Muppet show, you knew who who all these people were and and what they'd done before. So there was a lot of things that you know sort of fit into certain places. Um, there's a there's a lot more cultural context and intertextuality going on. Um, with a lot of the other stuff that they've done, but it is still very much approachable, especially um, it, it's it's really good for younger younger versions. I would say if you've got somebody, you know, uh, under the age of ten, and you're thinking of taking them to the Jim Carrey thing, I would say rethink that and and you know maybe try and find this on video instead because again the the Jim Carrey version has some moments that are pretty terrifying. Um, and, and I, I, I like it. It's true to the original, you know, it's, it's, that's what I think Dickens was sort of going for. And I think that that is again, brought out very well, but the Muppet Christmas Carol is, is a equally great pick. And I would second Kevin's recommendation for that. So, and as, of course, as you've heard earlier, um, that I didn't really get any of these Muppet, uh, references. So if you're not a Muppet friend, fan, um, don't be afraid. It's it's perfectly. It will be perfectly. It will work perfectly. Then a toast, my love, my dearies, to our merry Christmas. God bless us. God bless us. God bless us, everyone. That's going to wrap things up for us for our show this week. And tomorrow is Turkey Day, uh, so hopefully you will not be. If you're in the states, stateside celebrating Thanksgiving, you're not going to fill up too much on the famous bird. Um, but if you are, we do wish you all a happy Thanksgiving and to everybody else in other parts of the world. Um, if you have a moment, what does it hurt? Just take a moment to stop and think about what you're thankful for. Uh, that's sort of the spirit of Thanksgiving and sort of leading us into the spirit of the holidays. Uh, I'm sure Kevin, that includes uh, us here at East Screen, West Screen. Yeah, absolutely. And if you are thankful for us here at East Screen, West Screen, you can always show your appreciation by stopping by iTunes and leaving us an iTunes review or so. Um, we'd be happy to get any feedback that you have. Um, Kevin, do you have anything you're thankful for in particular this Thanksgiving? Uh, I'm thankful for my health, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. My ability to be here every week to talk to everyone here. Um, my ability to be able to watch Wanjing in Mongkok, to watch Live and Die Mongkok in Mongkok. That's something uh, that I'm very, very thankful for this year. Um, and uh, just generally for everything that's going on, everything that's going my way. And yeah. you, Paul? Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. I'm very thankful to have you here as a partner on this podcast. I'm thankful to all the people out there listening. I'm very thankful to my family for being supportive when I decided to pick up stakes and sort of move over here to Hong Kong on my own. Um, and I'm thankful just to have the opportunity to be here and 
watch movies and talk about movies and, uh, and enjoy life in general. Um, so yeah, again, we want to say thanks for listening and we hope you have a nice holiday if you're celebrating or a nice day in general, if you're not. And we will be back next week to talk about a couple of new films and some of the upcoming films we've got, we're getting quite busy here. What do we have? Um, in a couple of weeks, we've got the Mulan film. We've got yeah. Storm Riders. Um, there's the new film we talked about last time, Jump. A um, whole lot of stuff that we're going to be watching and talking about right before the Christmas break. Until then, we will wish you good viewing, and we will see you next time. See you next time, and happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Rain in all his naked glory. Rain. <laughs> yeah, because my my movie this week is Julie and Julia, which is um watching that tomorrow, so oh. I can I can catch Ninja. I, you know, it, to be honest, I'm kind of I saw the trailer for that and I'm kind of intrigued about it. Maybe it's my yeah. maybe it's my inner chef. I don't know. It's my maybe it's my inner Meryl Streep. <laughs> yeah, a little different from that. Yeah, it's. Yeah, a little different. More sex and drugs in your... A lot less, actually. No, a <laughs> lot more innocent. And, and a lot more like... It's it's kind of like a journey, you know? Like, there's a beginning. What and is this, like, of... McDull meets Hello Kitty, or what? Like, McDull... Yeah, actually, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. <laughs>